0: This is the Media Week industry podcast from the people at mediaweek.com.au. Welcome to a new Media Week podcast. We're going to be talking about New Gold Mountain today, a new drama starting on SBS. Joining me as he does for most of our Media Week podcasts, Andrew Mercado, TV historian, TV critic, Media Week contributor. Welcome back, Andrew.
1: Hi, James.
0: Now, one of the things you highlighted in your column this week in Media Week was the new series New Gold Mountain. I, I gather you quite liked what you've seen so far. So I thought we'd get in today our uh, executive producer, Kylie Dufresne, to talk to us a little bit about it. So welcome, Kylie.
2: Thank you very much. It's very nice to be here.
0: Now give us a little bit of background. So it's a, it's a Gold Post Pictures production and you're one of the partners in Goldpost Pictures, correct?
2: Uh, yes, that's correct. It's um, well, Goldpost Pictures slash Goldpost Television. Um, oh. uh, I'm one of the partners, along with Rosemary Blight and Ben Grant and Cass O'Connor, and we've been kind of working together, particularly Rosemary and I, as a producing team, for a very, very long time. Um, And yes, this is our latest uh, television production that we're very excited to bring to the world in a couple of days.
1: It feels like we've been waiting a long time for this. I know that there were delays because of COVID, but, you know, it was something that it it feels like SBS announced this some time ago, and now we're finally seeing it. What are some of the things that's caused some of the delays?
2: (laughs) Do, sorry, do you mean? Are you mean delays in uh, in bringing it to air? From um, well, look, we yeah we um, the series was financed. It was actually financed um, quicker than any production I've ever been involved in. Interestingly enough, it was um, it happened from a conversation with SBS with the then commissioning editor who um spoke about their interest in this time frame and uh you're probably aware that SBS have not commissioned a period drama before so it was never something that I would have thought about pitching to them um but when they said they were interested in it my I I was immediately um very 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 keen to be involved because like many many people was a huge fan of Deadwood had often thought about why we had not Looked at this period of Australia, you know, that Australia had such a massive gold rush and there were so many interesting stories to tell from that period. Um, So I think within three months we'd written two scripts and and were financed. Um, And then, of course, like many other productions as we were, you know, writing scripts and crewing up and casting COVID hit, So like many people, we were, you know, just not, it was not possible for us to start production for a long time. It was, you know, there were no permissions to do it. It as a very ambitious series. We had lots of great big set pieces, um, you know the kind of silver lining of that, though, Andrew, was we got to spend, you know, probably another six, seven months just working with the writers and with Corey Chen on scripts, which is just something that you never get to do, usually, particularly with your lead director. Normally, it's like, you know, you're you're rushing to the end, and um, but we we had that time, which was fabulous. Um, we really, actually, only finished delivering the series in May this year. Um, that was the so it, it it has been a very extended period of uh, of making it, but uh, not for anything controversial. Just <laughs> we finished it in May, and, and as you're aware, SBS uh, generally do two um, um, original commissions a year, and um, the beautiful unusual suspects went to air the first half of the year, and, and we were the second half, so that's where we are.
0: Kylie, tell us a little bit about how the project came to you. Know Peter Cox was involved with, with the what do you call it, the creator or his idea. Have you worked with him before?
2: Uh, yeah. So the uh, the idea, you know, started from a conversation, as I mentioned, with with the commissioning editor. So it wasn't even something that we were going into pitch. It was just a conversation about subject matters and and areas that we were interested in. Um, they SBS had mentioned that they would like to start develop, development on something and I had been working with Peter on a different project and when we were talking about the kind of show they wanted, knew that he had the kind of voice and was very good at kind of a big world building and knew that he could do it very quickly. Um, and then he pulled together, well, we pulled together a really fabulous writing team to work with him, um, Yolanda Ramke, Benjamin Law, Greg Waters, Pip Carmel and a bunch of wonderful script editors along the way Um, and so really you know that was that was the writing team that kind of carried us through Um, and then Corrie of course who not only is a great director but has actually got incredible story instincts um, had a lot to do with you know those final kind of making sure those scripts really got to where they needed to be.
1: Uh, it's filmed at Sovereign Hill, which, you know, worked out in your favour because Sovereign Hill was closed for COVID, so you had the whole facility to yourself. But I'm just wondering, that there's one shot in it where you're sort of looking up the main street and as far as the eye could see, I could see, you know you know, horses and people in the background. And I just wondered, did you do it all on location or were you dropping in any sort of... Uh, computerised special effects at the back to make those shots look bigger than they really were?
2: Um, yes. Oh, the magic, the magic uh-huh. of a bit of visual effects enhancement. Um, yeah, look, the, you know, the fact that we got to kind of shoot it... Sovereign Hill, like, it was like our own backlot, you know. For kind of, we were there for two weeks. was was a gift, really. Um, but that particular shot you're talking about, yes. If you um, if you looked at the real footage, um, very quickly it starts to see. I mean, when you're doing something set in the eight, in the 1800s, there's not many ways you can swing a camera before you're seeing something that's contemporary. <laughs> so you've got to be very, very clever with with how you do that. And then we're always looking for, you know, when you want to do those very early big world building building scenes. To look to enhance something with um, with set extension and matte painting. So yes, that is an extent a set extension in the visual effects world. <laughs> Good pick.
0: <laughs> yeah, well spotted. I mean, because I can remember that distinctly too. When I looked at that, you did that very well. It's just a it's just an amazing backdrop, Kylie. Could I ask you is um is historical drama expensive to make? So I'm sort of wondering why there isn't a little bit more of it, given a given the interesting sort of um, background Australia's got over, you know, thousands of years, um, why we don't see more of it?
2: Yes, I think, um, you know, period drama or historical drama, yes, is is something that Australia doesn't do that often and you've hit the nail on the head. It very much is a much more expensive um, thing to produce, you know, as I said, you know, you can't just kind of walk into a location and do a bit of set dressing and uh, you've you've got to build from the ground up Um, costumes, hairstyles, casting, you know, props, you know, everything either has to be built or made um, and that doesn't even then include locations. So it invariably is a really expensive uh, thing to do. Um, And I think the other thing that you know, having done a bit of period drama shows and films in my career, the other thing that is often, um, I guess, kind of asked of producers when you're pitching a period show is, well, what is the contemporary relevance? You know, why is an audience going to be interested in this? That's not just looking at it from it is a period in history. So, is there a conversation that can still be had, or can still be kind of somehow applied to, you know, modern day life? Um, and so. There are some shows and some stories that do that beautifully and seamlessly like I think New Gold Mountain does in terms of kind of multiculturalism and, um, you know, how we treat the other, if you like. Um, And there is others that just remain a a kind of a snapshot of a period of history. Um, So I think they're the two things that that perhaps um, impact more of it being done.
1: And I think, too, with making uh, period dramas and, and looking at our history differently, one of the really interesting things about the multiculturalism in New Gold Mountain for me is the fact that you've got English, Irish, Chinese and Indigenous, and yet amongst them all you see that sometimes, you know, two mobs team up. Other times everyone is sort of suspicious and, and you know, maybe a little bit racist towards each other. But there's certainly a desperation with everybody because, let's face it, you know, the gold fields, we're not talking five-star luxury there. It's a hard lifestyle that they were all all involved in, right?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think we spoke a lot about that during the scripting, you know, that that all the characters in a way, none of them have, anything to catch them you know none of them have security um you know perhaps except for you know some of the 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 upper english class who are who are represented but everyone is kind of exposed to the brutality of the time and the and and the kind of how to make your living how to earn your living how to eat how to make your way in a world that um is is really really tough whether you're a woman a single woman whether you're a Chinese miner, whether you're an Indigenous person on the gold fields, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's an incredibly difficult space for a lot of those characters because there are no support mechanisms for a lot of, a lot of those characters or a lot of, you know, it was a tough time. So, yeah, we, we certainly tried to lean into that. You know, what will you, ha- what will you do to survive, I guess, was the question we kept on asking ourselves in the scripting from all the characters' point of view. How far will you go?
0: Kylie, talk to us a little bit about the casting. Um, I won't pre- pretend to be too familiar with with all of them, but um, I think the lead. doesn't very, now? Am I getting this right? Is it Yosan An or
2: Yosan An? Yeah. Yosin
0: An. Yeah, how oh, close? Yeah. <laughs> and um, I've only watched that first episode, but he he he's sort of really quite striking. Uh, I guess he's a central character. Uh, Alisa Sutherland is great. Is it Mabel Lee as well?
2: Yes, so we started. We we had a you know it's a, it's a four part series, and I think the writers uh, and Peter <laughs> wrote something like sixty five speaking roles across the series, which was very very large. Particularly as a lot of them, um, you know, we're bi- we're multilingual series. Actually, there's um, the English language. There's the, there's um, there's Cantonese. There's a bit of Hakka. Um, you know, it's, there's a lot of lot of languages within the series, so it was quite a complex and very lengthy casting process to find everyone. Um, but we started with um, the role of Xing, who is the lead, because it all pivots off him. And um, uh, Yosin attached. Just before Mulan came out, so he was in that Disney film, and he attached just before that that film was released. So we so he was attached first. Um, and then not long after we um, were lucky enough to attract Alyssa Sutherland. I don't think had really done anything in Australia since Vikings. I mean, not sorry, had never done anything in Australia at all. Um, so we were really lucky to kind of get her over here for that role. Um, and then Christopher James Baker, um, who had principally been, you know, working in the States and lots of really high profile American shows, moved back to Australia and we were lucky enough to get him as well. And we kind of then built around those three roles and then Leonie Wyman, and Daniel Spearman came next. And then the great, great discovery was Mabel um, Mabel Lee, who plays Lane. She tested for us. She had uh, just graduated from NIDA not long before. And as I will shout to anyone, she is a superstar. She is just so mesmerising on camera. And um, it was her first major role. Um, She'd done a web series for SBS just before us, and then we were her first major TV role.
1: And that role she plays in The Tailings is so different to what she plays in New Gold. Mm. And and what you've got, you say, we were lucky to get this person, we were lucky to get it, but I mean, you've, you've got the perfect thing here. For me, you've got an Australian drama that tells an Australian story, uh, but you've got enough actors in there to, you know, pick up international eyeballs. Fans of Vikings will be interested in watching Alyssa Sutherland and all of that. I mean, did that just end up being a coincidence or were you making this show with an eye to the international market and thinking, well, yeah, yeah, I mean, you said that an influence was Deadwood and we know that Deadwood is a, the Western is one of those great genres in TV.
2: Yeah, look, I think, every, um, you know, everything we do, um, we are having to look at it from the point of view of servicing a world market because, you um, Uh, we always have international partners on anything we do as well as SBS. So we work with all three media um, as our international partners on this show. And um, so certainly, um, you know, all producers working in the television space, when you're looking at your casting, it's that balance between the beautiful new discoveries and the familiar faces for an Australian audience and the uh, internationally recognised faces and that's the kind of mixing pot that you're kind of trying to come up with um, in any show with, in you're doing and, and certainly that's, um, you know, you still have to be ultimately driven by who you feel is the best for the roles and I think we were lucky enough that we actually got we got both of that. We got the people who we thought were best for the roles and all of those things about, you know, satisfying domestic audiences, international and the great new discoveries.
0: I think Kylie, as we record it this week, the TV market's actually on in Cannes. Will all three media be sort of representing it there, or is it? Does it get a big push after it's been on SBS?
2: Um, no, they uh, they will have it there. <clears throat> Excuse me, they will have it at Mipcom and and out in the market uh, for sure. But I think certainly you know, the, the international market always looks for what happens in, your, in the local market first and that's really, you know, once you start generating, you know, your reviews and, you know, hopefully great audience engagement, that's the thing that can really just push, push a show and give it a bit more um, uh, kind of uh, exposure internationally. So um, certainly, you know, we're, we're feeling like we're in a good space. We've been getting some great responses and it, it feels like it's in a really positive place.
1: You've been getting some great PR, thanks to our friends at SBS Publicity. Nice uh, story today in the Green Guide of the Sydney Morning Herald today. Cover, fantastic. There's one character and actress, though, that's kind of isn't being talked about because there's so much to talk about. So I just wondered what you can tell us about Leonie Wyman, who plays uh, Hattie, uh, who's, uh, you know, What do we call her? Is she like an Indigenous? I mean, she's selling um, kind of bush medicine to some of the miners. She seems to be a bit of a a jack or a jill of all trades.
2: Yeah, so Leonie Wyman's character is called Hattie and she is a young Indigenous girl on the goldfields who is is kind of alone she's there without without family without her mob and again she's kind of trying to do what she needs to do to survive so she you know she you know sells sells food and sells fish to the miners and things like that but she's also she's an incredibly her character is an incredibly kind of astute, uh, astute person and a great reader of of lies if you like and she knows Shing quite well they've had business before and Shing being the morally complex headman that he is um, kind of uh, tells Hattie some things uh, don't want to don't want to blow blow the uh, blow the plot but um, tells her some things that she takes it face value but realises that it's not the case and so she kind of gets involved with actually trying to find out the truth about what's going on. Um, But she's, yeah, she's a a wonderfully strong, astute character who, uh, you know, in a way I kind of look at her a bit as the moral compass of the show. Sorry, I'll say that again, as the moral compass of the show. Um, It's not that everyone else is... um, uh, completely amoral <laughs> at all but um some of them are um but yeah she she really has a great moral compass about looking for the truth and what that actually means
0: yeah i noticed the the show goes out uh, starts um wednesday 13th october on sbs it's going to be of course on sbs on demand as well it's quite a light late time slot 9 30 does the the time slot Matter less these days when you can just log on to something like SBS On Demand or iView and just watch your shows.
2: Look, it's it's. I mean, I think I can only talk about this from a you know as a as an audience member myself. I mean, I think um, you know the fabulous thing is that you can now watch shows anytime you want. But I, you know, I do think that there is. What audiences are really loving these days is actually waiting for something to drop and not binging it all at once. You know that kind of a, that kind of excitement about appointment viewing is starting to come back. I I know I certainly um, enjoy it, um, but I think yeah, look, you know. I would hope that, you know, um, I certainly stay up, you know, for great shows at 9.30 and and would hope that there's a vast amount of our audience who will do so. And if it's too late for them, um, they can catch it in On Demand as well. So it kind of serves the best of both worlds.
1: There's a little bit of comic relief with uh, Alison uh, Bell and Rhys Muldoon playing the very... You know, pompous, stuffy British officials. There, Reese Rh- Muldoon, unrecognisable. I watched the whole episode and didn't realise it was him. I mean, do you, do you, do you agree with me that those characters are there a bit, a bit for comic relief?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Peter um, Cox was very clear that, and you know, we wanted there to be some. It's a, we didn't want it to be an unrelentingly dark world, and we wanted that kind of slightly. Uh, yeah, um, wry tone to come through, and it certainly does with a couple of the characters. I mean, I think Clara, once we cast Alison Bell, you know, she just kind of, she just took it to the next level. She's just hilarious. Her, you know, uh, her, her key scene with the scones was just something that you know we we laughed about, and that was, a lot of that was improvised. Um, but yeah, it's I think it's important, you know, when you are to give an audience a little bit of that kind of. Um, um release when you need and 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 you know certainly those two characters do it and yes reese luckily reese was already growing his beard because it was locked (laughs) down so he uh that was not a fake beard um so yeah he and yeah he he had a lot of fun uh, with that character was great
0: kylie did you mention earlier that that you were only at sovereign hill for two weeks
2: yeah, I think we okay. filmed at Southern Hill um for about 8 days actually and then another couple of days around uh the Ballarat area.
0: That it seems to me pretty quick. Did, did that is that we are working quickly? I mean four episodes, I guess it's not a huge huge series but still seems a a short period of time to to scramble all that into.
2: Uh well no, we were filming for 4 weeks elsewhere.
0: Oh you were? <laughs> okay. Yeah,
2: yeah. So we um we came back in so where the Chinese villages was built, uh, a big set was built in a park about twenty ks outside of Melbourne called Yellow Gum, and then we were filming out the or the diggings in a place called the Yu Yangs, which is outside of Melbourne. Um, so yeah, we just um did two weeks in Ballarat and the rest of the time we were kind of um, hopping around Melbourne, shooting yeah. the rest of the series.
0: Because there's a lot of night shooting, isn't there? A lot of it happens in the dark.
2: Um. Yeah, well, that's, that's I guess. that's what it seemed well,
0: anyway in that first
2: episode. Yeah, perhaps, perhaps less. I mean, I kind of i, I did the shoot going, oh, I'm so happy having done you know both of Leeuwineel's films where we principally shot two entire films at night. <laughs> um, I was like, this, this, this series has hardly any night scenes. It's fantastic, but um, <laughs> maybe, maybe, yeah, it's um, I think those night scenes that you're talking about, yeah, they were all shot um outside of Melbourne.
1: Yeah, that, that scene where the they're having the, the Chinese celebration and the Latins are going into the sky, I think it's moments like that that you walk away and you remember. Uh, that's what I remember with the night shooting. Um, I know James wants to talk, mention uh, I Am Woman, uh, a Gold Post movie. I just wondered, Gold Post have made a, a lot more movies than they have TV series. You've also done Clever Man for the ABC and Fighting Season for Foxtel. When you're making a movie and uh, what do you reckon's easier dealing with a studio who wants a movie or the network who <laughs> is wanting it which one gives you a bit more freedom to make what you want to do a movie or a TV series
2: Wow that's a hard question um yeah I mean we've always done film and television as a company you know for 20 years we've always moved between the two. We used to do a lot of telly movies, actually, but um, I don't know. I, I mean, it's interesting. I guess kind of the producer role I think is a little bit different in film and television. I mean, Rosemary and I, I guess we kind of call ourselves creative producers in that um, we're not just there to kind of pull together money and then, you know, um, step aside we like to be very creatively involved in every, in everything we do um, but i guess television and i i guess this is born out of you know multiple episodes and often you know although new gold mountain was one director you know often you're working with a number of directors and a number of writers and you need you always need a couple of people who have the big picture of the whole thing you know um and so there is I guess definitely I find a kind of um, creative producers in television, it's it's more of an accepted space that you operate in in that space. Uh, and film, I guess, is still very much directorially driven and you're there to really support the director's vision, even even though, you know, the great relationships that we have, whether it's, you know, with Lee Whannell, who's, you know, or Wayne Blair that we've done a lot of films with, it's still very much a creative co- collaboration you're very you're as a producer. It's about really making sure that director gets everything they need. So they have it's a slightly different role, a little, a little bit, I suppose, between the two. And each one of them, I wouldn't say one of them is is better or easier than the other. It's it's they each um they each kind of feed into each other. And sometimes it's really nice to, uh, well, I guess you never really completely step back as a producer, but sometimes it's nice in film that you kind of step back and you're there for the director and then other times in television it's nicer that you're at the forefront. So it's nice to have that kind of, um, those dual experiences I find.
0: And I, and I ask you this next question bearing in mind Media Week, sort of a business journal and, and we like to look at the, the business of the media, but the the financial model for making a movie and TV I'm guessing they're a little bit different, and the the cash flow is also different. And does does one support the other? In that you have you you have both.
2: I mean, I, look, I think from a from a a company and a business point of view, you know, that model of film and television has always been the thing that supported our company. You know, we're an independently owned company. We're not owned by studio. We're owned by the the people who run it, um, and so. Uh, yeah, you know, whether we're doing two TV shows and one film or two films and one TV shows, whatever that model might be in any given year, that's the model that works for us because we don't work in um, documentaries or factual television or reality, you know, um, we've always kind of used that as our model. I think the kind of financing model for film and television is actually very, very similar. Um, you know, film, I mean, unless you're working with a studio, you um, you know, Universal um, and Invisible Man, Um, most television and most film are put together in a very similar way. It's just, you know, you might have a domestic broadcaster, but then you'll have a theatrical distributor. Both projects always require international sales agents. Both projects never be done without the support of you know our our government funding agencies with you know screen australia or depending on which state you're working in you know screen new south wales or film victoria or screen west etc so they're very similar models in that kind of um slightly independent jigsaw place you know we don't really work well certainly the kind of work that we do as much as i would love you know that there is a singular funder of the stuff we do that's a, that's a rarity rather than uh, than anything else so yeah they're very similar i think
1: one of the great things that sbs does so well with their multicultural stuff is when they release it online they make subtitles available in a whole bunch of different languages um And it's interesting because this is a a show that I think of primarily as being a look at the gold rush through some Chinese eyes. And I think it was TV Tonight pointed out it's interesting timing for us to be doing a story like this when, you know, we see such negativity about China in the press, whether it's COVID or drum wars beating or all this stuff. How do you think the Chinese-Australian community is uh, going to react to this show and uh, w- will it be a history lesson for them as well too in a way?
2: Yeah, look, I, I mean, I think, um, you know, I think, I hope they, they are incredibly proud of the show and I think it's a long overdue story, you know, um, it, it's it's. I mean, we're we're blessed that we we got to tell it now, but you know, it probably should have been told years ago. I mean, I look at you know Corrie Chen and and you know what she's spoken about a lot, or you know, you know the um, the various collaborators in the production, um, Chinese Australian, you know, in our writing team and on crew and things like that, and and it is that um, I guess that realization that perhaps a lot of people. Not aware of is that the Chinese immigration story is not a recent one. It's something that's over 170 years old. It's something that has, um, and if you look at the gold rush and um, and how that in in a lot of ways built Melbourne. You know Melbourne. Uh, you know after the gold rush was seen as the richest for a, a short period of time was the richest city in the world um and you know Chinese and um we're, were at the forefront of that so I think it's a it's a really long overdue story I think the fantastic thing about it is that it shows that the Chinese story has been an Australian story for a really long time um, and um and we have a huge diaspora you know of of people, of Chinese Australians who, who still have family connectivity back to that period. And that's a really exciting thing, I think, to just expand that story and, um, and realise how many Australians have that, that part of the history as their heritage.
0: Kylie, before we let you go, I just want to ask you a little bit about the uh, other work you've been doing. You mentioned the Invisible Man. I think the other two movies before that were um, I Am Woman and Top End Wedding. I think the, I guess, the movie business has been impacted more than TV because of the um, the theatrical distribution has been completely stopped in in most countries. Um, TV's managed to to keep going when people have been able to film. Have you got any movies that have had you've had to put on hold that you will start work again on and similarly is there much tv stuff in the in the pipeline
2: yeah well we're, the next film that we uh that's in final post-production that my business partner is producing uh is, is carmen um so that is um will come out next year sometime but that's yeah that's um finishing off production at the moment um uh, yeah it's interesting I you know film is is one minute you think it's dead and the next minute it re-emerges. Um, <laughs> um, certainly the last few years we've had to really relook at the kind of films I guess that we develop, but film is still an active part of our slate and we certainly have um, films that are actively will be made sometime in the next couple of years you know whether they are Films that kind of sit in the full theatrical space, mm. or whether they're films that now sit for the streaming mm. space, it doesn't mean they're a telemovie. movie. They still are a film. Yeah. It's just the way we're we're viewing them is different. So it's still a, an active part of what we're doing, and yeah. It's I, I feel I feel pretty good about that. It's just we've had to kind of relook at the kind of the kind of stories that we do. Um, and yes, we have more television, but I'm not allowed to announce it yet. We're, <laughs> we're kind of heading production next year on on some things, but we haven't announced. So watch this space.
1: <laughs> I actually had a cinema for oh, three years, a small cinema, and I would I would talk to everybody about what they thought when they came out of the movies, and I realised that when people go to the movies, they just, people, most most Older people, I guess, go to the movies, and if they can have a laugh and have a cry, that they're happy. You know, they're happy with a mo- with going to the cinema and having that experience. But you know, it feels to me like. The edgiest stuff is is on streaming, but people want to go for the cinema, and I guess now more than ever, as cinemas reopen, uh, I guess I'm really hoping that you know those crowds do go back to cinemas. And but you know, in wrapping up for me, I want to say I love New Gold Mountain. I think this has been a fantastic year for Australian TV dramas, and I love where this sits telling a part of our history where we've only looked at the surface of the history and I think you mentioned today in the Sydney Morning Herald we haven't had a Gold Rush series since Rush in the 1970s and I'm, I'm sure there would have been some Chinese extras way off in the background but they wouldn't have had any dialogue and, and I love it that we're doing these much more rounded stories about our history. So thank you for New Gold Mountain. I've watched the first two episodes. I can't wait to see how three and four finish it up. Thanks. Thanks.
2: Thank you. Thank you for, um, yeah, thank you for your support. And it's uh, we're, we're thrilled, really looking forward to um, the rest of Australia agreeing with you <laughs>
0: okay yeah well thanks for me to uh kylie and tell uh, all three media to look out for andrew's um review there at mediaweek.com.au i'm sure they'll get some marketing quotes out of that perhaps absolutely um, yeah. <laughs> congratulations on the series uh new gold mountain sbs on demand from uh, wednesday on screening there wednesday nights at 9 30 p.m over four weeks thanks for joining us
2: pleasure nice to talk